Good evening, everybody. My name is Laurel McDonald. I'm the interim director of the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. Um, and on behalf of the University of Toronto Libraries, I wish to welcome you uh, this evening for the 18th annual Alexander C. Pathy Lecture on the Book Art. So thank you, everyone. Um, before beginning, I wish to acknowledge the land upon which the University of Toronto operates. For thousands of years, this has been the traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississauga of Port Credit. Today, it is home to many Indigenous peoples throughout Turtle Island, and we're most grateful for the opportunity to work on this land. So to begin, um, I very much wish to thank um, a very special person, Professor Alexander C. Pathy, uh, Professor Emeritus and former Vice President here at the University of Toronto. As many of you may know, Professor Pathy has been a wonderful advocate, not only for the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library, but for the University of Toronto Libraries as well. Professor Pathy serves on the Board of Advisors for the Friends of the Libraries, and he works very closely with Megan Campbell, our Director of Advancement, and with Larry Alfred, our Chief Librarian. And we're very grateful for his advice and for his guidance. Here at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library, however, we're most grateful to him for his continued support of this remarkable lecture series. So thank you, Alex. So before I introduce this evening's most remarkable guest lecture, um, I wanted to provide you an update about a possible recent acquisition. Um, as some of you may know, um, the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library and the U of T Library and the University of Toronto have this opportunity to acquire um, a 1481 um, edition of Cicero's On Friendship and On Old Age that was printed by William Caxton. William Caxton was the first English printer, um, and he had a tremendous impact not only on English literature, but also on the English language. Um, and this is a near-complete um, Caxton. And if we were to be successful in acquiring it, uh, we would own the oldest printed um, English book in all of Canada. So we hope to um, do this through support through you, our friends, and also through the University of Toronto um, resources. And we very much hope that you consider um, donating to us in this most remarkable acquisition. Um, I'm very pleased to report um, that the book will actually be arriving uh, next week on Halloween, on October 31st, um, for an inspection. Um, so if you have any questions about this, I encourage you to speak to my colleague, Megan Campbell. Um, I now wish to uh, introduce our, our guest speaker, George Walker, who's familiar to many of you. Um, George Walker is a professor, an artist, and um, a writer. He's most uh, known for his wonderful um, wood engravings and his wordless novels. Um, Professor Walker has degrees from the Ontario um, College of Art and Design, um, from Brock University and from York University as well. And in 1985, he joined the faculty at OCAD um, to teach in the area of book arts. I think 1985 was busy because he and his partner, his wife Michelle, also established Columbus Street Press as well. Um, I very much encourage you to look um, at the display we've put out of his remarkable work. Um, in 2002, he was elected to uh, the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts. Um, he's been involved in 15 solo shows and over 100 group shows as well. 
um, and his works can be found in institutions as diverse as um, MoMA in New York and here at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. So without further ado, I wish to invite George Walker. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. This is such a great library. I just love coming here. Anybody who's gone through the stacks here knows about all the treasures that are buried in, in the shelves. And so it's always a, a pleasure to come here, even if it's just to look up at the books and wonder, wonder what else is in there that I haven't seen. So thank you, all the friends of the Fisher, as well as Professor Pathé, for uh, inviting me here to give a talk about my work. I'm uh, a book artist primarily. I work in uh, the form of uh, wood engravings and, uh, and hand-printed books, which are printed in my studio. And, uh, and then I have a publisher who does a commercial edition of them, so I do a fine press edition and then a popular edition. Today I'm going to talk about uh, reading pictures and uh, visual literacy and about signs and symbols and how one can read images and what that means. So we've been reading signs and symbols forever. Ever since the dawn of time, humans have been looking at the sky to find their way and looking at the ground to find out where they are and what animals they're tracking. So this notion of reading signs and symbols is not new. We know it's probably the origin of all written language, this idea that we make images onto other surfaces and that they tell other people what we're doing or what we saw or what might be there, or maybe even mythological things or spirits. So, of course, this is uh, from Peterborough. It's the, uh, the petroglyphs. So can a story be only told in images? And that's always puzzled me about that idea of just a series of pictures. But, of course, we already know they that we can do this. Think about silent film. Think about just um, uh, cartoons um, presented to us in, in a series of, uh, of panels. So for me, uh, a visual narrative is a sequence of images that are presented um, without the use of letter forms or words. Um, so the picture emerges as a text and becomes the primary language. So think about a storyboard or, uh, or that type of thing. And that's what I was interested in exploring. And throughout my work, that's what I've been exploring. And I'm not the only one who was interested in this. Uh, Art Spiegelman also said that about wordless narratives, that they are filled with language. It just exists in our head, not necessarily on the page. It's a different type of language, and it's a, vi it's a different type of reading. Visual literacy is a type of reading. So can a story exist in a single picture? And I would argue, yes. Take a look at this uh, Kerlick. The Kerlick uh, has a story that we are presented with. We know what happened here. A snowstorm went through, but all kinds of things happened in this picture. And we could talk about the kid who's making a snow angel. But all of a sudden, you're scanning this image, looking for that. Are you going from left to right, from top to bottom? 
How are you looking at the image? You're actually reading it. You're trying to find a way to find the little things in the picture that will then bring the story closer to you. So everything that we see in this picture is a small narrative, and we're reading that. And why we're reading that is because we are impressed with the, the, the colors and the way that the two-dimensional image is presented to us. Like words, images can tell us two things at the same time. They can have double meanings. So I've I pulled out this uh, Wittgenstein image to show you that, and many of you are already familiar with uh, this image. It's rabbit uh, or rabbit duck. So if you look at it one way, it's a duck, and if you look at it another way, it's a bunny. And some of you will be able to see that quickly, and others will be going, I see the bunny, but I don't see the duck. Uh, but that's part of visual literacy, an ability to be able to read images in different ways from different perspectives. Um, so an image can function like a word, but it can also be abstract and misinterpreted, too. So I, you know what a rebus is, that notion of substituting words with pictures. I see... You. So what makes a word a word? That also puzzled me. I thought, well, can an image be a word or is that just a symbol? Can it actually uh, be something else or tell us more? So I started looking at some of the Rebus books, and I think the, the library has one of these. This is the famous Hieroglyphic Bible. Uh, and it's, it's fun to read because, of course, some of the pictures are obsolete in the sense that we no longer know what exactly was meant by them. But another interesting thing, the Lord, the word God is in Hebrew, although this is a, a Christian text. Uh, and then there are other little symbols there that I puzzle over a while. But I wonder if the reader uh, from the uh, 18th century would have found this easy to read or whether it would be more difficult because and they would have had to be tutored into learning how to read images. We do this now. We're reading images all the time, maybe more now than ever before. So I put this up here because now we can see people communicating over what they're going to eat for uh, dinner. And uh, many of you will be able to read this, but some of you will go, what? Emoticons? Pictures? So you can see, oh, I, maybe, hey, I love pizza. Oh, yeah, great. Let's get pizza then. Yay! <laughs> so it's, it's, it's funny how... Um, even with all the modern technologies that we have available to us, that we still fall back onto the primary form of communication, the image, as a way of getting information across quickly. So how does an image create meaning? Well, we know from what, what are studying Egyptian hieroglyphs and earlier forms of writing that uh, that. Some of them represent sounds, some of the images represent sounds, and others are ideograms which present a whole notion of, of what was going on. And so a combination of these happen uh, to create a full writing system. But that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about reading pictures on their own as its own form of narrative. And I was inspired by Franz Masarel. Masarel created wordless narratives uh, in the... Uh, in the early part of the, the 20th century. And he was int his interest was social justice and, and, uh, and change. And 
uh, he used uh, all of his books word wordless. And one thing that he really loved to do was to uh, create uh, visual narratives that upset this, the uh, the government and the status quo. One of his books um, was his first book was about uh, the. World War One and the atrocities that were committed during World War One. But the wonderful thing about a wordless narrative is you never said anything, so it's very difficult to arrest you for speaking your mind. But he did say a lot, and uh, many of his books were, were banned, and some of them ended up being popular in places like China because they're polylingual, because they didn't have written words except for the introductions. Uh, philosophers like Thomas Mann wrote introductions to his book, and so did Hermann Hesse. But we can interpret these things on our own. Lynn, Lynn Ward was another uh, artist who inspired me. Uh, he he uh, saw Masrail's work while he was in Germany, and when he came back to the States, he realized, this is what I want to do. I want to carve images out of wood. I also call this xylography. Uh, it's a, a word that... Uh, slightly pedantic, but means the same thing. It's woodcut and wood engraving, scratchings into wood. Ward's stuff de dealt with social change too, but he, he was also interested in deeper things, uh, um, the psycho psychology and, uh, and, and civil rights. This, the one at the top, well, pilgrimages from 1932. So this is another interesting thing that I like about Ward. He said, I'm not an illustrator. When I do an illustration, that's a different type of process. What he was really interested in was the image as a form of text. So when you make an image that is an illustration, it is supporting a text. So the text already exists, and you're creating an image as a supportive element to it. But when the image itself is the text, it's serving a different purpose because it is telling the story, it is driving the narrative. So it's a different thing altogether. To bring us back to Canada, Lawrence Hyde was Canadian who did a wordless narrative on the testing in the Bikini Atolls. He was outraged by uh, the... Uh, Americans towing the Japanese fleet into the Bikini Atolls and then testing an atomic weapon there. Rockwell Kent wrote the introduction to this book, and it's completely wordless narrative. Although in the introduction, uh, Hyde says that he uh, that it is a fiction that it, it's nonfiction. It's um, that the nonfiction event of the testing Bikini Atolls is not what his book is about. Although it obviously is, because that's what he's making portrayals of. But you have to remember the time he was doing this in the 1950s. This was a dangerous thing for him to do. Rockwell Kent was already under investigation uh, for un-American activities. Activities. And certainly this, this wouldn't help his career much. Although Hyde went on to work for the National Film Board. Because when you think about it, all these wordless narratives, well, they're just like a storyboard. And so it was a natural movement from this process to the process of making documentary films. I thought I'd show you some of the, um, the images from that book. He calls them mimes. And, of course, this is the bomb of peace, <laughs> a nuclear weapon being dropped on the Bikini Atolls. So all these, uh, 
these uh, books I, are in my own personal collection, and I assembled them all into an anthology called Graphic Witness. Woodcut is one of the oldest mediums, graphic mediums, and a lot of confusion lies over the difference between what's a woodcut and what's a wood engraving. So I thought I'd go into that. It's mostly about the tools, but it's also about the surface that you're cutting on. Uh, I'm engraving on the end grain of the wood, which is the part where you see the rings, and uh, woodcut is done on the plank end of the wood. I'm using the tools of the silversmith, so spit stickers, engraver, engraving tools, lining tools, and, and, and um, scorpers, whereas the woodcut artist uses parting tools and gouges. Uh, and it's often known as the art of the white line because, of course, the image is made entirely of white lines. The illusion of a black line is caused by creating two white lines. So here's the block for that image. This is what linocut and woodcut are usually carved out of materials like a flooring material like linoleum or plywood or uh, basswood or material like that. So it's a different process. And often with woodcuts, you'll see the little splinters happen on the edges, and you won't see that on any of my images. The cuts are very, very clean, and the edges are very, very sharp. What we know of as modern wood engraving was invented by uh, Thomas Buick in the 18th century, and it became an important development because it led to things like catalog work and uh, illustrated newspapers like the London Illustrated News and Punch Magazine, all illustrated with wood engravings. And, of course, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Um, uh, Lewis Carroll uh, hired John Tenniel to create all the images for it, but he got the DL brothers to create all the wood engravings. So Tenniel drew on up to uh, a block directly sometimes, and sometimes it was transferred, and then the DL brothers would engrave it out of boxwood. Here's a, a, a catalog piece. The other thing that wood engraving did was it opened up the work, uh, a catalog work for people who were interested in uh, selling their products with uh, a picture beside it. And if it wasn't for wood engraving, they wouldn't have been able to print the image and the text beside each other because a lot of the illustrative techniques were very primitive before uh, Buick developed the wood engraving technique that, uh, that led to illustrations like these all carved on wood. I know it seems phenomenal, but by 1899, they could engrave photographs on the end grain of wood. And they used specialized tools called lining tools to create the halftone pattern that we're so familiar with in newspapers. But this is all uh, carved out of a piece of wood. And it's tools like these that make that possible. The graver, the spit sticker, and the tint tool. And this is from my book on uh, woodcut and wood engraving, The Woodcutter's Handbook, where I outline uh, not only the history of the process, but also how to do it. The xylographic narrative. That's what I call it. How do I do, how do I develop these uh, narratives? I thought that you might be interested in seeing my process. So I've created a bunch of slides here to show you exactly how I go about it. First research, of course, I've got to find out 
exactly what kind of things Tom Thompson experienced in uh, Algonquin Park. So I go up there and I do a lot of sketching and I do a bunch of portaging into, into uh, remote lakes to try to find and trace the places where Thompson was. This is from my book, The Mysterious Death of Tom Thompson, a wordless narrative that I did um, several years ago. I was also interested in Thompson's Toronto. What did that look like? So uh, I, did, uh, I went into the archives and found uh, some of the Notman photographs. And uh, this, of course, is uh, how busy Toronto was back then. When you think about it, in 1914, we don't think of the streets of Toronto being crowded, but they were, and traffic, a problem still. <laughs> I had to take these photographs and I had to, to translate them into the medium that I work in, wood engraving. So I started creating these black and white images. And they're all uh, portrait uh, format. And I'm looking, oh, here we're looking up to Old City Hall. And Temperance Street is just down there. And that's where Thompson worked, at the grip uh, with J.H. MacDonald and, uh, and, and others who would become the group of seven. Look how crowded it is. <laughs> I don't think it's changed. <laughs> so this is my engraving based on, on that photo. So some of my work is inspired by photos and others uh, by, uh, by just drawing it out, trying to find uh, uh, the narrative through sketching. I found this old photo of a, of a, a car stuck on, uh, in the mud on Young Street, and I thought, oh, this would make a great... Um, image, but I threw Thompson in there because Thompson would have had to trudge his way up with his portfolio to work every day, and so you can see uh, I put Thompson right here in the background. Here's another street scene at uh, Old Toronto. Inglis the Hatter. I wonder if he's still in business. <laughs> so here you can see how I interpreted that into a wood engraving. And there's Thompson. So I'm putting Thompson into these, these spaces. I engrave on Canadian maple. I, want, I like the connection between the surfaces I'm working on and the subject that I'm working with. The other interesting thing with this is that I am doing a wordless narrative about a man who never wrote anything, who only told stories with paintings. And so it's the language that he spoke. And so I like that, that notion that Thompson, who a painter, um, and I'm telling his story in images. This is the last block in the book. And um, Tom Smart and Ross King uh, found the place at Bing Inlet where um, this painting was done. And they believe they found the trees that, uh, this, that this painting was based on. They had fallen and they found them on the ground, and they gave me a piece of that wood, and I engraved this engraving on the piece of wood that uh, they found at, uh, at Bing Inlet. Again, trying to connect my story to place and time. That's my engraving of Bing Inlet, Bing Inlet based on the painting. So you can see I'm, I change it. It is, it is inspired by Thompson, but it's not a Thompson. And I've also done something terrible. I've removed the very thing that gives Thompson uh, a lot of his appeal, his colors. <laughs> I've taken that away too. I know, it's terrible, but it's all about, it's about this, this narrative I'm trying to, to uh, construct. So these are the actual blocks. 
that I, I made from the pieces of wood that I got, and that's the prints from them. They're a lot smaller. When, when you look at the books at the side, you'll see that my images are quite small. So I'd like to talk about the visual transitions that I use in my, in my books, too. So here we have um, three images from the book, and I showed you that one already, the one uh, of the car stuck on Young Street. And this is a parade uh, that happened in Toronto. And, of course, there was a lot of controversy at the time because Thompson, who I've circled here, didn't uh, join the, uh, the military effort that, because it was 1914. Remember, the First World War was starting, and everyone had to do their service. Men, let's get a uni uniform. And, of course... Thompson uh, never got to join the army, and some say it was because he wanted to, uh, but some say it was because maybe McCallum had done something in Ottawa to prevent him from joining, or that he was flat-footed, which seems unlikely since he did a lot of hiking through Algonquin Park, but in any case, he was unable to join the armed forces. And in Toronto at the time, one of the things I threw in, in my blog here is a woman with a feather. There were a group of women in Toronto who would put chicken feathers in the lapels of uh, young men who were not in uniform as a way of shaming them. Now, I don't have any direct evidence that Thompson had a chicken feather put in his lapel, but he w you saw how busy Young Street was back then, and you saw how busy uh, Bay Street was, and he, he was working right around the corner, so he had to walk through this every day when he was going to work. And to think that this, people didn't yell and jeer at him and say, boy, join the army! And so here is a, a, the far picture on, the, on your left here is uh, Dr. McCallum and Thompson considering one of his paintings. I made it look like a photo, but no photo of this ever exists, uh, ex existed. Um, I was, I'm interested in that notion that Susan Sontag talked about in, on photography, the idea of the photograph as a form of truth. And we still believe that. When we see a photograph, we go, well, that must be true. There's a photograph of it. But we know in our hearts that photography is a big liar. Uh, we know that even more now because of programs like Photoshop, when we can Photoshop anything into a photograph. So I like that notion that when, if I reference a photo, it somehow gives it legitimacy. And this is a, this middle one is a gallery, and then uh, I'm, I'm also interested in sequences in the narrative. So this is who I'm saying is Thompson's killer. And I like the idea that we, would, we could pan across and see his killer pull a canoe up, and then he's been drinking, and he throws a bottle aside, and he's got a paddle. Now, there's no evidence that this actually occurred, but I like to entertain that idea. After reading uh, McGregor's uh, book, uh, book um, Tom Thompson and the Women Who Loved loved him, I thought, oh, this is, this is what might have happened. Maybe Shannon had a few, few too many to drink and followed Thompson and that they had an argument over uh, Thompson's uh, muse. Uh, anyways, uh, I also am interested in mood changes and in um, some of the iconic paintings of Thompson and creating them in my own style for this, for this narrative. And the idea of silence also intrigued me. Writers have this problem. How do you write about silence? Is it an ellipsis? Is it just a blank page? Well, with an image, images are already imbued with silence. They already have it as part of their nature, and I like that about it. Here's a couple of my sketches so you can see some of the process that I went through to create my images.
this is an argument that I thought they may have had because I know uh, Tom Thompson and uh, Shannon and even maybe Belcher uh, would often have arguments over drinks uh, in the cabin up at Gotham Park. And these are the engravings that I made from those. And Winnie Trainer, uh, Tom Thompson's muse, she lived up uh, in a Gonkum Park uh, in a cabin close to where Tom, Tom was staying. He was staying at the Moat Lodge, and uh, Winnie and Tom spent a, lo a lot of time together. And so there is an, a letter uh, that uh, Winnie wrote to Tom saying, if, if we're going to be married in the spring, you'll need to get a new suit. But that's all we have. We don't know because, of course, uh, Tom uh, passed away. And uh, so I did these engravings just to give a hint that there was a relationship there, maybe a little more than what uh, some scholars might <laughs> want, want to say. And you can see I, I did use some historical photos too and then interpreted them in my own way. And with the, with the iconic paintings, uh, like uh, Jack Pine, you can see how I've removed all the colors. And there's, there's a flavor of the image there, but it is different. And same with West Wind. I've, I've interpreted it. I've also put this image up of, from his commercial work. And a lot of people didn't, don't know much about Tom Thompson's commercial work. He was an expert in the Ben Day process, which no one probably remembers what that is either. It was a process of putting tones in the background of photographs. Oh, yes. Thompson worked with photography. In fact, he lost his camera on a canoe trip once after he took a whole bunch of photos. A real loss because everyone would have liked to have seen what they looked like. He, this is one of his uh, commercial illustrations. It, it looks, you can see a little bit uh, in his painting style, but most of his commercial work didn't look like his, his, uh, his painting. He was going for something else when he uh, left work and went up north to try to paint the Canadian landscape, which, of course, is something that we all have in common, the, the land. I like that about it, too. And so I, I also see my work as more binary being just black and white, whereas uh, the photograph is more a uh, continuous tone and uh, akin to an analog. So the wood engraving breaks that down. And I always think of reading as very binary, uh, black and white. Uh, and that's why we, we can read better with text that's black and white than, than with uh, color text. Some color texts are more difficult to read. Many designers would argue with me, but... Uh, and I, I thought I'd show you some shots of... My, working on my press, uh, there have uh, it all locked up, uh, and and that's the book, the Tom Thompson book, and uh, you can see some of the engravings there. And uh, I thought I'd go through another book. This is my wordless Leonard Cohen, uh, and. The research I did for that, I read a lot. <laughs> to, uh, I, I read and tried to get into Cohen's head to try to figure out uh, who he was. And uh, I, I did, this is an engraving of his mom and, and Leonard uh, in, in their home. And here, this is kind of cool. This, uh, I, this is from, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Leonard Cohen, the, the film. And I was inspired to do this bicycle based on that. Isn't that great that we have a, a, a little short clip of uh, Leonard riding a trike? And, of course, I watched that film. 
and all my work goes well. Colin gets around. He lives in Greece and comes to Canada once or twice a year to renew, as he says, his neurotic affiliations. He picks up a prize or pushes a book or travels to public appearances with other poets like Irving Layton. Irving Layton. Great. <laughs> so I thought I'd also show you this little clip. This is... This is me engraving a Leonard Cohen block to Leonard Cohen. So I also oh going too fast. Uh, so I I use photogra- I do use photographs. Uh, I find uh, the images that I think would work well. And here's uh, Ellen Ginsberg and and, uh, and Cohen. Um, and of course uh, Joni Mitchell. I do a lot of engravings, hundreds of them, for uh, a book, and then I start to edit it. Uh, I'll, I'll throw things away that I don't like. But here you can see the, the block and the engraving. Again, Canadian maple, because Leonard Cohen's Canadian. And Phil Spector. This is my engraving of uh, Leonard Cohen with Phil Spector. And the second engraving, because he held a gun to Leonard Cohen after giving him a bottle of wine and held him in the studio at gunpoint. He did this to most of the musicians until he finished recording. I, there's no photograph of that. <laughs> this is one that I, when I read about this, I thought, oh, I, I really need to do an engraving about this. Uh, Cohen was uh, playing at an asylum, and, and which he wanted to do. And he kept getting heckled from the audience. So this guy's yelling, Cohen, Cohen, you ladies' man, you, you poet, you have everything. I have just one question for you, one question. What do you think? What do you think about me? What do you think about me? And he had this, uh, he's, Cohen describes him as having this uh, scar where he had t- a piece had been taken out of his head. And Cohen just puts his guitar down, gets up, goes down into the audience, and just embraces embraces the man, just holds him. And I thought, oh, what compassion. And uh, there's, there's no photograph of that either, but I thought I need to make that image because it's an important thing and it speaks a lot about his character and who the man was. And here you can see how I would interpret a photograph into the engraving. And uh, he, he, of course, uh, played with uh, Venus. And so I did this. This is an animation based on the wood engraving I had. <laughs> but I like this idea of Venus playing with his head. Oh. And, of course, he was uh, a monk. Uh, and uh, he studied at Mount Baldy, and this was... Uh, is uh, the master that taught him. I did that, and I, of course, did this uh, Buddhist symbol above uh, the master's head. And that's uh, another wood engraving I did of of, uh, Cohen meditating. 
And here you can see uh, I'm drawing on the block, so you can actually see how I develop my images. And that's the image that's from that block there. And that's the cone book. It's bound in uh, Japanese Asahi silk because cone was a bit vegetarian. And all the blocks were engraved on Canadian maple. And there, it, that's what it looked like on my press with the uh, metal type. I am a letterpress printer, so all of uh, I use Gutenberg's technology. I handset the type and I carve all my images out of wood. When I, I print the images and then I'm onto cards and then I can shuffle them. Just like a writer moves paragraphs around, I'll move the sequence of images around until I find something that I, I'm happy with. So that's uh, my engraving for Suzanne, you can see there. And then I number, oh, please don't go super quickly. Um, I number all the blocks. Um, as, and sometimes I'll, I do it in pencil because sometimes I erase the number and move it to a different location. Uh, but this is great for when I'm on the press because then I can figure out which, I'm, which block I'm printing next. And I, I donated all the blocks to the Fisher the, for the Leonard Cohn book so you can actually get to see them. And I make the blocks. Uh, here I'm making blocks from outside my studio. They all have to be type high in order to work on my press. That's 918 thousandths of an inch thick. So I have to be very careful to make sure that my blocks are all the right size so that they work. And there I am pulling some proofs and engraving blocks. And that's the text for the Tom Thompson book, which I also hand-carved. And that's the mess that I work in. <laughs> yeah, I know where everything is. <laughs> and I'm pulling a proof here. You can see that's looking the other way down my studio where my press is. I also uh, like to throw myself into the Im image, into my narratives. So Dr. Howland and Tom Thompson, and there I am in the Book of Hours getting coffee. Uh, Hitchcock does that too. <laughs> Now, this is the Book of Hours. It's uh, uh, the story of 9-11 that starts on September 10th and follows the workers as they go to work in the Twin Towers uh, before the planes hit. And so all the images are of uh, people going to work and working uh, at desks and doing uh, office work. Isn't it funny how the struggle for power is always fought by people that don't have any? And uh, I did uh, two uh, limited editions of ten copies of the Book of Hours, uh, one on uh, a Western paper and another one on uh, a Japanese paper that Nancy Jacoby from the Japanese Paper Place donated to me. And I also did uh, Conrad Black, The Life and Times of Conrad Black. Uh, after he went to jail in Miami, uh, I emailed him. Uh, <laughs> he was easy to find. And I said, uh, I said I, would you be opposed to me doing a narrative about your life and times? Because uh, I'm, I'm interested in you. I'm interested in Canadian biography. And uh, he said, oh, yes, certainly I would be honored. 
And so we started a correspondence, and uh, and I was worried uh, that uh, I would be sued because he's very litigious. But and my publisher at the Porcupine's Quill said, if you do a book by him, I'm not publishing you. And I, I said, but what if I get his permission? What if I get him on board? Because I'm not saying anything. I'm just making pictures of his life and, and the things that he did uh, because he he has had an impact on Canadian culture. And... Uh, so he he did. I got uh, I got Conrad Black to sign his portrait. I said this is an agreement that he agrees with the images because I sent him every single image for his approval. The funny thing was, um, if I could just speak a bit more about um, uh, Conrad Black, was the image that I thought I would have got sued for. He was the one who told me to do it. It was uh, Conrad Black being caned at Upper Canada College. Uh, because he told me they were his formative years and he was known as Conrad Blackbottom. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I thought, anyways. Uh, the next subject I did was, uh, was Pierre Elliott Trudeau. I wanted to do the October crisis, but um, my friend Tom Smart said, no, no, you should do the whole man. You should do, you should do Trudeau because he's such an interesting character and his life is so rich. I said, oh, okay. So I started reading and uh, doing some research and uh, started to create an, uh, the life and times of uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And, it, wow, it's really interesting when you think he was a separatist as a young man. <laughs> and, uh, and anyways, I did um, 80 wood engravings for this book because he uh, passed away at 80 years old. And uh, that's, that's the final product. I had um, Justin Trudeau agreed to write a short intro, and uh, George Elliott Clark wrote a piece for me too, and they both signed the book. And uh, I, it's all bound in leather, and it's a very heavy tome. These are this is one of the engravings of uh, Maggie and uh, and uh, Pierre in Tahiti in 1967. And that's the impression we We went to, my wife and I went to Ottawa to meet uh, Maggie Trudeau to ask her if she would write the introduction. She said, oh, no, I, I never write about uh, Pierre. I said, well, do you think Sasha or Justin would, would write something? And she said, oh, well, maybe. And I gave her a bunch of engravings that I did, uh, hoping to con to convince her or somebody. But he eventually did, and he... he uh, and, he wrote the piece before the election, so I ended up with his book signed by a prime minister before he was a prime minister. So that was pretty good. And he sent me a very nice letter of thank you. I gave him copy number one. I gave Justin copy number one. And this is the last wood engraving in that book. And in my neighborhood, a tree came down, uh, the Alexander Murr tree, uh, and that was inspired the song The Maple Leaf Forever. And that maple tree, I thought, oh, this is perfect. That will be the last block and I will do a uh, pier on uh, the last block of that maple tree. And so this is the, uh, the sign that's uh, at the, that maple tree, the silver maple, maple that inspired the song in 1867. And that's the, uh, the block I got from that. I had to go to City Hall, and they made me pay them $5 for the block. <laughs> but I thought it was worth it. They didn't understand what I was trying to do, and it was hard, it was difficult to explain it. I'm, I'm still trying to explain what I do to you, so you can imagine. I'm going to make a wordless narrative, and I need a piece of wood. <laughs> what? And then I hand sew. Once I printed the book, I hand sew them, and um, here's the little uh, jig I, I made for sewing my books. 
and uh, there you can see it locked up in the standing press. I, uh, Firefly Books published an anthology of my wordless narratives called Written in Wood, and it's uh, available at every fine bookstore. Um, and you can see there's a black and white picture of me working in my studio. I've also uh, helped other people uh, write wordless narratives. These are the ones that the Porcupine's Quill has published. So after I do my limited edition, a popular edition is made. And I'm the graphics editor for the Porcupine's Quill. So these are students of mine and other uh, artists who I've uh, encouraged to do the same thing that I did. And I make them do the lino blocks or woodcut blocks. I know they want to just do ink drawings, but I think there's, there's method in this madness. There's something about the rigor of carving into a material. And it's also reversed. So if you're dyslexic, it becomes a skill. Um, and... And uh, so there's a lot more fun in creating a narrative this way, and you really have to like the image if you're going to spend a few hours carving it. The book I'm working on now is uh, the wordless uh, Barry Pickford, uh, of course, who lived just on University Ave, just down here. And uh, this is one of the engravings I did for that. And uh, I've started making uh, some engravings on the life and times of Mary Pickford, who, of course, started, started United Artists, and we could say another Canadian who made Hollywood. And this is my engraving of uh, and Charlie Chaplin and her were, of course, great friends. Oh, and this is great. So um, Mary Pickford said, adding sound to movies would be like putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo. And I thought, oh, great, I will do that. So I think that the, this will be the last image in, in my book on Mary Pickford will be the Venus with lipstick on. Because uh, when you think about it, they, we did add sound uh, to the movies. And you can't, you can't halt change. Change is something that's inevitable. We just have to embrace it. And that's the, my talk. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody might have. Uh, let's start, Warren. How do you get your blocks? I mean, I, you went to the tree and got permission for it, but do you, do you cut your own blocks? Does somebody supply them? How do you make sure they're exactly... Yes. <laughs> yes to all of that. I cut my own blocks I, for, for, for a while. I was the only way to get good blocks was to... I ordered them from uh, Burlington... There's a place called Exotic Woods there, and I would get um, seasoned maple from them, and then I would cut them carefully and then sand them. Uh, and then I found, uh, I found a guy who, uh, who could make them for me. There was this guy uh, named Joe Spratt, who would, a carpenter, who would make blocks for me. But for the, it depended on, on the situation, whether I had time or not to make the blocks, because I need a lot of blocks. So each narrative is about 100 images. So it's... Uh, it's a bit of a challenge, but for the most part, I was making them. And often I have to adjust them, even if I get somebody make, to make them for me. It's, it's a good question. Yes, sir. Yes, yes. Yes, all maple, yes. Usually because I, I usually make all the blocks first, and then I can draw on the block so I can 
uh, be in the house. If I get an inspiration, I can draw something on the block itself. So there's two ways of getting the image on the block. You can draw directly onto the block, or you can make a drawing and then transfer it to the block, or a bit of both. Uh, if, when I, if I make a, a drawing and I want it to look just like that, I have to reverse it onto the block. So I need to transfer it by turning the image upside down, or backwards, I mean. Thank you. Yes? Ah, I use, uh, currently my shop, I use two brands, uh, Hossmann and Steinberg and uh, Van Son. Uh, I use exclusively letter uh, oil-based inks, um, and uh, sometimes I use rubber-based, but mostly oil-based inks because they, uh, they give me a longer working time on the press, and I, I prefer the quality and the velvety quality of, of black that I get from the oil-based inks that I use. Yes. Type high, yes. It's just two words. Type, like a piece of type, high, which is an actual measurement that letterpress printers use. So if you were going to use type in that English common press, you would be best to start with something that was type high. T-Y-P-E, type, high, H-I-G-H. It comes from the, it comes from the printer system of measurement. You know the printers developed their own system of measurement, and at one time type high used to be an inch. But you know the inch is based on the barley corn, and so many barley corns would make up an inch. But that was because of a farm-based economy, and in a farm-based economy, uh, when the farmers are doing well, they, the uh, the barley corn was big, and your yard was longer. But when the farmers did badly, poorly, right, the barley corn shrunk, and so did the yard. So that made perfect sense in a farm-based economy. But if you're trying to build machines, it becomes a problem when the, the uh, unit of measure, the standard, standard unit of measure, moves all the time. Then you've, you've got a real issue, and the printers encountered this early on and decided that they weren't going to have any more of that nonsense. They were going to have their own measuring system, and that's where we get the points and picas that many of you are familiar with from your computers. Good question, though. Yes? Yes. Yes, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, it's attributed to Thomas Buick uh, as the inventor of modern wood engraving, but there is evidence to suggest that others were doing similar types of things, but Buick gets the credit because he standardized the process and the teaching of how to uh, create uh, um, images on the end grain of boxwood. He used exclusively boxwood. He was a silversmith by training, and he did mostly gun butts, and then he moved to doing uh, images. His, his uh, famous book is A History of Quadrupeds. But there is, of course, uh, relief printing itself uh, may have uh, originated in China. And, um, and, and this, this question comes up all the time because movable type, too, can be traced back to China. But uh, Gutenberg's contribution to printing was the advancement of the ink technology, the casting mechanism that he created, and the printing press, which were unique that they didn't have in China. So that's how we, we, uh, we separate it now. But there's still a lot of scholarship to be done in, in, uh, in research in that area. Thank you, though. Yes, Sandy. Yes. 
Yes, it's, it's a good question because the if you think of uh, Elbrecht Durer and his wonderful cuts, which were probably done on hardwood um, and uh, with a, a knife, uh, and uh, they're amazing. It, ha it largely has to do with the person making the cuts. So you can get very, very fine detail out of uh, plank wood, but uh, it's harder to do that. The thing about uh, wood engraving is is you're using uh, engraving tools, different tools, and you don't have to worry about the grain of the wood. So the grain of the wood, of course, if you look at any piece of wood, uh, the grain is running like this, and if you go across the grain, you're likely, if your tool is a little bit dull at all or has a, has a dull spot on it, you'll get a splinter where the cellulose fiber will actually break and will create a little uh, white nick in it. And so that's often what we can see in, say, works like uh, Edward Munch. If you look at some of his woodcuts, you'll actually see that happening there. Um, but with wood engraving, you don't see that because of the nature of the tools and the 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 end of the end grain of the wood, there is no grain because the cellulose fibers are standing upright. They're not laying flat. And so there's no, um, the tool doesn't have to break through a cellulose fiber because of the nature of the grain. I don't know if that's explaining it very clearly, but it's the best I can do. <laughs> yes, sir. Ah, that's a good question. Is it more difficult because there's more friction when you're pushing the tools through? Well, this the point of this this problem is to always have sharp tools. Is always be sharpening your tools. Never be never a, a moment where never a dull moment. <laughs> Ever. You must always be sharpening. And I tell my students that too. They come to me with dull tools and they go, I can't get this. It's not working. It's so much work. And I go, well, it shouldn't be that much work. You're working with dull tools and you're more likely to cut yourself with dull tools than you are with something that's very sharp. And it, it takes a lot of patience to get a keen edge on, on a graver or even a, a woodcut tool, like a parting tool. And, but it makes all the difference because it means that your work is clean uh, and your lines will be sharper. But yes, that's sharp tools. Anyone else? How did you get started? How did I get started? Oh, many years ago. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. Uh, going all the way back to high school. In high school, I went to a trade school, and I took graphic arts. I did four years of graphic arts. So I was a printer when I graduated out of high school. And I just wanted to keep pursuing that. I could have just got a job in a print shop. Uh, so I knew how to do letter. I knew how to run a linotype machine. I, uh, I was, <laughs> and uh, my my teacher said, Walker, learn how to be a typesetter. There'll always be a need for typesetters. <laughs> always. He was wrong. <laughs> and. Uh, and, and so I went to arts college, and I just kept pursuing my interest in books and the book arts, and, uh, and it led, one thing led to another. Um, when I was in college, um, uh, Bill Poole, William Poole, my mentor, uh, said, we're going to make a book from, from the ground. We're going to start. We're going to just make a book. And I said, great. So he's, he said, I've got to find someone to write something. So he came, went to Massey College. Uh, well, actually, I should tell you the real story. He was at the uh, symphony, and he was having a pee in the washroom. And um, <laughs> should I mention who it was? Yeah. Um, 
So it's, uh, Robertson Davies was having a pee beside him, and he said, uh, my students are going to make a book. Do you think you could provide us with a text for that book? And, uh, and he said, oh, yeah, sure. So they agreed, and then we, he, uh, uh, Bill dragged us to Massey College, and we sat, well, uh, Robertson Davies told us about you know, what a great thing this was that we were going to make the paper, we were going to handset the type, we were going to print it on an iron press, and we were going to do, and do all the book binding and everything by hand. And he said, this was a really good learning experience for us. And we're like, oh, okay. And, uh, and at that time, I hadn't read anything of Robertson Davies, so I immediately had to go, go and get as many, all his books going, oh, wow, this is amazing. And, uh, and then uh, we, we handset it and we printed it. And then we needed to find out how to do bookbinding. So Bill said, oh, I know somebody. So he brought us here. And Emerson Evans used to work in the library downstairs as a bookbinder. And he, he grabbed Emma and said, I've got, I've got these boys and these girls. And they, they need to know how to bind books. And so he said, oh, okay. So, and that, that's how I learned how to bind books. And so that's the beginning of the journey. And then I became addicted to it. And ever since then, I've, uh, I've been making books. And uh, Bill was probably, and many others, uh, and in places like this, you just come in here and go, I want to make books. I want to make something that lasts forever instead of becoming obsolete in five years. I want something that has the staying power, something that's a real time traveler. And the book is that, and that's why we love books. And everyone here, I think, feels the same way. We know that they can stand the test of time. We're not so certain about these things on the internet, the internet for me is not an archive. It's just a place to temporarily put things. I'm not against it at all. I think the, the technology is great, but I think if we want things, if we want to communicate to the future, we need to be making and storing things that can stand the test of time. All right. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Um, well, I, I had lots of pictures to choose from, and so I just I wanted to uh, I wanted to create uh, something that looked like her. I thought it still looked like her. Um, oh yes, and and Thompson did a painting of of her too. We think there's again the painting is entitled, but yeah, that's a good question. Why did I do that? Uh, you know, at the moment it just felt right. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes, sir, in the back. Can you, uh, you describe the process that's involved in migrating your images uh, from your limited editions to Yes, it involves scanning all the images at 1,200 DPI and then saving them as bitmap TIFFs and then sending them to the publisher uh, and in, in the correct order. That would be the manuscript then. And usually um, we have an, I, I get someone to write an introduction uh, and my friend Tom Smart often writes an afterword or an introduction to my to my works. Uh, but uh, I, we also invite other people. And I've um, we did a, a book about uh, Daddy Hall, and I got uh, um, George Elliott Clark to write something because uh, Daddy Hall uh, was one of the founding members of the uh, the Black community in Owen Sound. And my friend Tony is is he's his relatives were came up through the Underground Railroad, and so. I, I got him to cut all these lino cuts about that story, and then he had to scan them all in, and then we, we assembled all, them all to send to the Porcupine's Quill for 
the, the popular edition. So that's how that's done. And then Tim Inkster prints it on an offset press. But he's still much a, a hand operation. It's just Elka and him uh, printing the, the book and then uh, binding it themselves on their, their Smythe sewing machine. But they're a great Canadian press. Uh, and just like Gasparo Press is out, and, and of course here in Toronto, the, the Coach House Press, they're small presses, but they do important work. And I'm grateful that they, that um, Tim uh, agreed to publish my wordless narratives because he looked at me cross-eyed when I said, "And it's a book without pit- without words." You know, it's a. He's going, "Why would anyone want that?" And something else that I, I didn't say was that um, uh, many educators are using my wordless narratives in their uh, in their program to teach ESL and autistic children because this is a way that they can engage the book format that tells a story that doesn't require them to be concentrating on words. And then they can uh, see the pictures and then talk about the story. And uh, this gets back to the oral tradition about that, that you can read a book if you know the story. And so if I show you each picture, if I had just slides of every picture, I could tell you the story, but it would be my story uh, over the, with the pictures enhancing it. So the, the pictures just become a, a stimulus for the narrative. Well, thank you. That's a good question about how they get, how do they get to the popular edition. Is there, is anyone else has a question? No? Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Professor Pathy, we're most grateful. And thank you all of you for coming out tonight as well. Um, I hope you have the opportunity to look at George's wonderful work. Um, there's food and drinks outside. George is here, Professor Pathy's here. I encourage you to, to meet up and to mingle and have a look at this wonderful material. So thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you.